0: Welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. It's Wednesday, February 17th, 2021, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. And today we are joined by a dear brother, a friend, Uh, And just an incredible pastor, Jason Paredes, and he is the lead pastor at Fielder Church in Arlington, Texas. Uh, Jason and Virginia have been married for almost 20 years, and Jason started working at Fielder in 2005, and he assumed the role of the lead pastor in August of 2016. Before that, he had led the missions outreach of Fielder Church. Uh, He and Virginia have five incredible daughters and a son who brings all that balance to the girls in the home, and they have had many of their children come into their home through adoption as well. And I just love Jason's heart for the gospel. First and foremost, the way that he leads Fielder to have a heart for the, the needy and the vulnerable. And one of the things that I have been so blessed by uh, as Fielder in Arlington, Texas, has a goal in order to reach 1,000 children through adoption and foster care over the next eight years. So they started two years ago, and over the next 10 years, want to reach 1,000 children. And what a what a great, awesome opportunity, not just to reach children, but to also show this community the hope of the gospel. Before we get to talk to Jason, I want to remind you of the Roadmap to International Adoption webinar. If you're considering international adoption but are stuck with too many questions to list, we invite you to join an upcoming webinar. It's the Roadmap to International Adoption. Topics on this webinar include the process, home study, what does travel look like, financing your adoption, and so much more. And there'll be opportunities for you and your family to ask questions or to hear the answers to questions that other people ask as well. You can always register at lifelinechild.org backslash info meetings. Again, that's lifelinechild.org backslash info meetings. Or as always, those links will be in the show notes. Well, Brother Pastor, Jason, so grateful uh, to be here. And I know you and I have had the opportunity to connect uh, on several different occasions, mostly there in Arlington, and every single time I have walked away and I've told my wife what a blessing that you are, and I think you and I have even agreed. We we've not spent like an abundant amount of time with each other, but in a, in a lot of ways we feel like brothers separated at birth. At least I do. I don't want to yeah. put that moniker on you, yeah. but um, you know, one of the things that I loved, maybe one even one of the first times we met, was just hearing about. Just the history of you becoming the pastor, the lead pastor there at Fielder, and even just the familial significance that that is. Can, can you just tell us a little bit about how the Lord led you to where you are now at Fielder Church? Yeah. And uh heard me just
1: say, I, I feel likewise, man. I, I love the fact that we get to do this particular type of ministry together in our unique circumstances and positions of leadership, but definitely a kindred spirit. And uh, I tell my wife the same thing. I'm telling her this very morning how much I appreciate the friendship we get to have. And, uh, you know, uh, thinking about the, the becoming the pastor of the church, I still have no clue how that happened. I'm, I am, uh, I ask the Lord often, like, what were you thinking uh, about this? And uh, so I I, uh, I, think about your comment, brother separated at birth. I'm the brown brother, you're the white brother, but uh, somehow we're, we're brothers in Christ for sure. And uh, I, I never thought, when I came to Fielder, because I came to do missions and I came to do Spanish language ministry, I, and I, my title was Hispanic pastor, which is really a pretty jacked up title when you stop and think about, like, "Hey, look, there's the white pastor, there's the black pastor, there's the Hispanic pastor." But we were learning back then what it means to be multi ethnic, and uh, the church was recognizing in Texas and the DFW area there was a huge rise in Spanish speaking people, primarily from you know, South Central South America, and so. So let's hire somebody uh and so uh, I got hired I kind of snuck in the back door to be here just because I happened to be bilingual and they wanted somebody who could lead in missions and I've been an overseas missionary in Buenos Aires Argentina and so I um uh, you know I, I came here to do that to start Spanish language ministry and to help us advance our mission uh you know footprint around the world and I uh I didn't ever think that I would be leading at this particular church because it's a, it's a large church I came from a church of about 40 people before I came to this one of about 4,000. And uh, that's a big cataclysmic shift in the way things operate. And, uh, and 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 really, I never would have been hired here if it wasn't for me being Hispanic. And uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about kind of a familial background. So my grandfather, uh, he was a very well-known pastor in uh, Spanish-speaking churches uh, here in the state of Texas. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't learn this till later on in life, uh, till I was at at Baylor University, where I went to to college and I was reading the Baptist heritage book. And my grandfather's name was in it when it was talking about Spanish language ministry. And I thought, holy moly, who is this guy? I called him up and I said, grandpa, why did I just read your name in my Baptist heritage book? And he told me for the first time, here I am, I'm about, I'm I'm 19 years old. He says, well, here's some of the things that God let me do here in the state of Texas. And he traveled around with Billy Graham doing, uh, he was his interpreter as he went through Latin America. And just like, crazy things that he did that I never knew about. Uh, but I realized there was a family legacy. Mm. He had been doing church work. He grew what was considered the first Hispanic megachurch in the state of Texas and uh, things that were were very uh, amazing, uh, abnormal back then. Uh, and my dad was a rebellious preacher's kid who didn't really want to have anything to do with church. He was uh, He's junior. He's, he's Carlos Jr. And uh, I guess he didn't, you know, he had these huge sky high expectations on him and Felt like that wasn't his story, and so it was really crazy that, uh, in his perspective, uh, to see his dad do it now, his son continuing mm-hmm. in ministry, uh, made me realize, wow, that there's a there's a there's a legacy that's gone on from uh, our particular family and heritage and working with Spanish speaking people in the state of Texas, and I, I feel a continuity of that. But Fielder was a primarily Anglo church when I came here, and it was wild to see. Uh, not just how God blessed the uh, outreach and the interactions we had with the Spanish speaking community here, uh, but how we've changed as a church, because it's a big deal for a largely what used to be Anglo church to call the guy they hired to do Spanish language ministry to be their next pastor. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that's a statement, but I think it's a beautiful statement about how far our church has come on this journey. And I, I feel like I'm just, I'm riding a wave uh, that the Holy spirit has brought and
0: I just don't want to fall off the board, but it's, it's been pretty exciting. Brother, I, I know the last time that I was there visiting with you, uh, you know, I got there a little bit early and I was sitting in the parking lot and, and certainly this was just a weekday and, and y'all have a, a school that you allow to utilize your space on the weekdays. Uh, but what a blessing it was as on one side of me was a family that I could tell was speaking Swahili. So probably somewhere, uh, East Africa. And then on the other side, there was a Korean family. Um, and then I could tell once I got out of the car, there was a, a family from with Chinese heritage because I could understand the Mandarin enough to know, hey, that's Mandarin, and to see the nations. And, and that's one of the beauties of, of really what Fielder has become is the nations. There's a part of the nations that come and, and make a home there at your church. But then you guys have also gone to the nations and now you're bringing the nations to you. And, and you talk about family heritage You've been able and you in Virginia have been able to bring kids home now through adoption, specifically actually from China as well into your home. Talk about that calling and just the Lord's leading upon your family to to look at adoption and then how that has branched out into you leading the faith family to seek out adoption and foster care as well.
1: Yeah. You know, um, I don't know, Herbie, if you do this like I do, I look back over my life and I go. I mean, were it not for God, I don't know okay. what kind of screwball I would be, because <laughs> when, even when it comes to adoption, I had zero interest in it whatsoever. I, it just wasn't, and, and to be honest with you, uh, it wasn't much a part of the Latino culture. Adoption wasn't talked about, wasn't normal, and it's still an area that we're, as a church, we're praying, we're seeing some really good fruit in, but, but that was not my cultural background at all. Virginia, on the other hand, she kind of felt since she was a kid that one day she might adopt. She never told me that, but she she kind of had that kind of brewing in the back of her mind. And so I'm the missions pastor, and I am traveling over to China because we've been supporting an orphanage in China. And we're putting tens of thousands of dollars into this thing. And I realized I got to go see it just to make sure it's like really there and this is not some scheme or something. So I travel over to China with the director and I meet five kids. And one of them is this little boy named Max, named after Max Lucado. And cute, there were, there were four other girls in the house and there's one little boy. And, uh, and, and he's playing in my lap, he pees all over me. And uh, you know, I didn't realize he was marking his territory at the <laughs> time, but he was saying, this is my daddy. But I, I had no framework to understand that. And so he's a year and a half old at the time. And I, I have a great time with him. I come back home and I tell Virginia, hey, yeah, I, I got to see the orphanage. It's cool. There are just five kids in there right now. And I started showing pictures and she knew almost immediately that little boy was supposed to be our child.
0: Mm.
1: And I, I wish like how dull and thick am I that I can't hear from the spirit the way that my wife does. But uh, I'm, I'm, I pray, I read my Bible. I didn't hear any of that from the Lord. He, he was probably telling me I just wasn't listening, <laughs> but, but she was listening and she knew almost immediately. She took about two months before she told me, uh, that that she thinks we're supposed to adopt this boy and called me to pray for it, and I I struggled immensely uh, with that because I, I thought see, he's a child with special needs, uh, he's he's got a foot that's bent in, two hands that are bent in, and it's going to be a lot for our family. We had two little ones at the time, demanding job in ministry. I, we just can't we can't do this. It's going to be too much for our family, and so I'm I'm opposed. I'm fully opposed. Like I don't have to pray about it. No, we can't do this, baby. And she, she was gracious, but, uh, and and just said, would, would you please just pray about it? Would you, you know, and I'm a pastor, I have to say yes, right? So, okay, I'll pray about it. But I didn't want to pray about it. I didn't want to do this. And that just shows you my heart. So like anything that comes from this is obviously the grace of almighty King Jesus, not because I got some things figured out, but it was in Exodus chapter 40. And it was a time when uh, it was, it was a, an odd passage. It was about the tabernacle and how Moses had been in the tabernacle and building everything, all to the specs that he'd been given by God. And then it says that uh, the tabernacle was finished. he made one last final check through walking through everything. And then when he left, it says the spirit descended upon the tabernacle and it filled the tabernacle so much so that Moses couldn't enter into it. Mm. And, and like it was just that sacred and holy. And then it said that uh, the tabernacle would, would travel around with them. And every time they either the, the cloud by day or the pillar fire by night would pick up and move, they would pack up the tabernacle and they would go after it. And, and, and that particular quiet time, I'm sitting and going, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Like, why does that detail matter? And I realized as I was, as I was thinking through that passage, this is the one place of obedience of the, of the nation of Israel. They're, they're grumbling, complaining, angry people. Mm. And yet the one place of obedience is that wherever the tabernacle went, they went with it. And, uh, and, and because they were desperate for God, they didn't have anything. They were in a desert wilderness. They're not going to survive without the spirit of God. So if the fire's moving, they're moving. If the cloud's moving, they're moving. And in that moment, I felt like the Lord saying, "Jason, this is where I'm heading. I'm heading toward adoption, and you are not packing up your tabernacle to follow after me. And you will wither without me." And so for me, it was just a sense of a God. I need you, and if adoption is the means by which I receive you, while I keep up with you, then then okay, I'm packing up the tabernacle. I'm going to go. And I told Virginia, uh, "Let's do this." And uh, I think I think God has clearly said we're supposed to because that's where He's moving. And it was. It was amazing all the things that God did from that and the miracles that we got to see and the sense of closeness this is, why I, this is why I'm such a proponent of adoption. It's beautiful in and of itself for what, what, what you get to be a part of in, in being a, a part of a child's life that gets changed. But the closeness you get with God, the experience mm-hmm. you have with God and his provision and his power is, is untold in any other area because God is uniquely for the orphan, for the, the fatherless. And so I I got to experience things that were outlandish surely because of the grace of God, because he forced his way into my life to to Mm -hmm. call me to that. And so that's, that's how my wife and I were first drawn into it. Uh, And, you know, we adopted a second time. Honestly, my wife was the driver of the first one. I was the driver of the second. And the reason I drove it is because I, it was a number of years later and I missed that intimacy with God that I experienced in that first adoption. And so I just said, uh, God, I, I want to experience you the same way. And I know I did so with adoption. So would you give me permission to adopt again? Like I'm, I'm asking God, please let that be part of my story again. And I felt permission from the Lord. Yes. Come seek me in this. I'm in it. I had to convince my wife, though, because at the time we already had four kids and she's going, the quiver's full, Jason. We don't, we don't need anymore. <laughs> but then I had to say to her, would you would you just pray about it? Would you just spend a little time praying about it? And she did. And sure enough, the Lord spoke to her and we began the adoption process again but uh, and experience the intimacy of God all over again, and so that was that was a driving factor for us personally for the two adoptions that we had uh, from China and and gracious, graciously uh, given that gift from God. Uh, and as a part of that, though, you know, I'm I'm preaching and teaching most every Sunday, and uh, this there's so much I've learned about God through this. So, so many experiences I've had of God's perfect provision, it just oozes out of my conversation all the time, mm. and so. Uh, it was it was interesting to watch other people in the church become, uh, you know, righteously jealous. Like, I, I wish I had that kind of experience. I, I wish I saw God move in that kind of tangible way. And so they would say, all right, I, I think God's calling me into this process of adoption. And we start we saw it start to grow. Uh, and, and there was a, a little quasi movement starting to take place. It was micro at the beginning, but there was a, I could see some some momentum building. And then when God called me to be the next pastor of the church, I'm praying through what's the future of our church. Uh, I, I realized this was going to be a place where he was going to use my story to advance the, the message of the gospel of Jesus. And, and it was, there was one real driving question as I thought through the vision and I, I'm sitting there going, okay, God, what do you, what do you want me to do to lead this church? It's a 60 year old church. Uh, 50 of the 60 years were under two pastors, both 25 years apiece, And it has been led very well. Uh, I didn't want to be the weak link, so I'm going, Lord, what does it mean for me to lead well? How, how do I make sure I'm taking us in the right direction? And the question he led me to was, was really two: uh, are we celebrating what Jesus celebrates and are we weeping over what Jesus weeps mm-hmm. over? Do, do we have alignment with the person of Jesus? And as I was thinking through that, especially the weeping factor, are we weeping over what Jesus weeps over? And I, I started to think about the, the children in the world who were completely forgotten by the church by society as a whole, whether they're in an orphanage or whether they're in a home where they never have parents say that you matter, you're valued, uh, whether it's a a child who's in a system Mm -hmm. of foster care going past from house to house. Mm -hmm. I think the Lord weeps over that because these are his precious creation. He He's put his very image into them. And to Mm -hmm. see his own church, own people standing by stoically and uninvolved, I think he weeps over that. And so I knew as we were praying through this and, and, and what he would celebrate when a child finds a home where a mom and dad say, I love you, you are forever mine. I think he is popping the bubbly in heaven saying, I celebrate this. My heart leaps for this. And so we, we knew if we were going to celebrate what he celebrates, weep over what he weeps over, that we were going to have to have this kind of ministry or we'd be missing his heart. So that's, that's how it shifted from our personal family story into the dynamics of the church.
0: I love to, you know, it's not just become something Obviously you and Virginia have adopted. Now you're leading the church, but the neat thing that I've seen about the progression even of, of how adoption and foster care been such a part of Fielder is I had another opportunity to come and speak to your staff and it's amazing uh, how many of the staff at Fielder have either adopted or fostered or helped someone who's adopted or fostered or been a part of that story or that journey or have a a brother or a sister, just to see how many of your staff have experienced this journey so that when they're leading in the student ministry or when they're leading in the children's ministry, this isn't coming from some odd dream or vision, but this is really a part of who you are and a fabric of who you are. And you know, I think a lot of churches, and, and you talked about this, that you know, before you came on board really is a very pale church, Fielder was, a, a very Caucasian church. And, and now this church has become so much more diverse how do you think that the diversity of fielder actually helps you hel- helps you reach around children who are coming from many different backgrounds to show that the body of Christ isn't just Caucasian but the body of Christ is multi-ethnic and 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 just such a beautiful kaleidoscope
1: yeah you know it, it is such a uh, an unexpected blessing uh, for us because you, you don't you almost don't see it coming I mean it's just you're focused on adoption and foster care. And the goal is bring children into homes and then provide the support that those homes need to raise healthy families. And you don't think about the corollary uh, benefits, but they, they almost seem peripheral, but, but they're, they're magnificent benefits that come with this, this changing color, this tapestry of colors that, that form the body. And I think right now, like in our, in our times, uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, I had a message just talking about unity uh, on m l k weekend and and what does that what does it look like for us to be cognizant of the issues that that people of color are facing in our country and it's one thing for uh for for people to look at that from a distance right so like let's say they're white and they're hearing about on the news channels what's going on uh, they're hearing about uh, b l m they're hearing about uh, you know things that are taking place they're hearing about uh, a mob on Capitol Hill. They're hearing all these other things that are taking place and they're trying to digest it but from, from their one point of view. I'm amazed at how a parent's mindset shifts when they're white and their children are black or Asian or they're Hispanic and their child is white. You know, when, you, when, you, when you mix these groups together, all of a sudden now it becomes exceptionally personal and so you don't, you don't view it with calloused or cold eyes anymore. You, you view it with, uh, with an incredible amount of intensity and desire to hear and to listen. And, and I think that's probably more than anything else. It's, it's opened up our ears to hear because, and, and for me personally, you know, I, I have two children from China. And so when there's anything that uh, might be construed as derogatory toward Asians or Chinese specifically, uh, you know, with, with coronavirus and, and the number of things that were out there in the public, I perk up really quickly because my heart's involved in it. These are my children, and and China is now a part of my heart. We celebrate Chinese New Year. We do it big. Uh, We love that aspect of our culture because it's now grafted into the fabric of our family. Well, that's taking place all over the church in a bunch of different cultures, from Latin America to Africa to Asia, You know, uh, just all all over the place. And it really allows us to enter into a dialogue uh, from a position not of a cold aloofness, but of of, of a, a heart-centeredness in it, uh, and I and I think too, though on a second side of it, from the children's perspective specifically, one of the things that I've I've seen in my own family, and I I could be projecting beyond uh, the scope of what I should, but I, I think it it passed the eye test. Uh, I think so core to children is some sense of identity: who am I? And I think one of the biggest struggles in adoption, oftentimes, especially when you adopt a child of a different ethnic makeup, is a struggle with identity. My son, Max, went through this. Uh, You know, my my daughter, Jovi, she's too young to uh, have gone through this yet, but she'll go through it as well. And there's a uh, there's a sense of who am I? Am I and especially in my home, because my poor son, his name is Max Fugu Paredes. So he's (laughs) like he's got his Chinese middle name. Uh, he's got his american first name he's got a spanish last name he is as confused as can be about culture and who am i and you know it's it's a uh it can be a complicated thing so uh, i remember the phase he went through where he really wanted he was so intent upon discovering his uh, his bio family now his unique situation he wasn't able to do so because he was abandoned and there was no point of contact and no way to reach out to, uh, to discover his his birth family and so, uh, you know, we, we don't have information. So it was, it was just conjecture. But there was a season, a long season. I remember Mother's Day. It was, uh, it, was, it was painful for my wife, Virginia, when, when he said, I, I want to ride a Mother's Day card, but I don't know who to ride it to. Do I ride it to uh, my Chinese mom or, or to you? And, you know, for a, a mom who's been there with him since he was three, and he, this was, um, you know, some eight or nine years after he'd been living in her home, there's a sting to that kind of thing. But he's wrestling through identity. Mm-hmm. Who am I? Who was he would ask questions. I wonder if my dad was a soldier. I wonder if my mom was an artist. I wonder who they were. Uh, and when you don't have anybody that looks like you at all, it, there's all one color and then you look different. It, it exacerbates that identity question. You feel like you are abnormal. But when you go into a setting where there are a lot of Asian kids, some of them with Asian parents, some of them with non-Asian parents, there are, there are white kids, some of them with white parents, some of them with Hispanic parents, there, there are... Children who are African-American, some with, with black parents, some with white or Hispanic parents, when it, when it gets all jumbled like that, all of a sudden, it's not abnormal anymore. I, I'm not abnormal. I'm normal. I, I just, this is my particular stage in life. And, and when, you, when you find a sense of, I was created perfectly by God, and this is not a detriment, the fact that I don't match the skin color or cultural identity of my parents, I think a child is freed to become who God created them to be without those shackles of identity always gnawing at them. And so our our church environment that creates, and, and we, we had the funniest moment ever, Herbie, it was, it was great. We were at, at the ERLC, um, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission uh, meeting they had once a year and, and I was on a panel and we were talking through something like this. And I, I remember just mentioning like, it, the, one of the craziest things about our staff is, we're, we're a very multi-ethnic staff and the, uh, adoption, as you mentioned, is a huge part of our culture, but. If you were to put children and then put staff and then give somebody the, the, the challenge of like writing a line child to parents, trying to match everybody up, it would be utterly impossible. There's just no way because there's such a mix of all these different groups and ethnicities and family units. And, and it's, it's so normal mm. that uh, it makes it beautifully acceptable for the children to be who they were created by God to be and not to be embarrassed by adoption not not to see this as a wound or as something wrong but as a real normal part of the fabric of life uh, that's done in my family alone has done so much to uh, buoy their spirits and recognize they have purpose and mm-hmm. why God created them and why God brought them into
0: our family Amen. wow and i i think even you know the one thing that kept coming to mind as you were telling max's story even even coming to y'all and saying, who do I write this mother's day card is I think that's kind of the way Paul felt when he was writing first Peter, you know, we are strangers and aliens. And even as you're talking about that, you know, this is a, this is a time. And I know every time has been like this to an extent, but in our existence, this is a time where you really do feel otherworldly. Like I don't belong here. I don't belong in this, uh, my values are not necessarily the ascribed values of any political party or any station. And, and you, we feel kind of like exiles. And yet this last year has been so hard because the church has been separated. And in a time where we need our tribe, we need our people. We need the rest of the folks that feel like strangers and aliens and don't know which way's up and know that this isn't our home, but, but sometimes try to put roots up here. The church has been so integral and bro. I, I have been so encouraged by the way that you have led your church during this time, a, a church that's on mission uh, internationally, a church that's on mission domestically, a church that obviously has this goal to adopt and foster vulnerable children in in Texas, as well as around the world. And yet a, a terrible pandemic comes right in the middle of this and sends everybody home. And bro, I, I know you may not want to go into the whole thing, but I, I was so encouraged and, and I hope I don't embarrass you. I've told so many pastors about kind of what you guys did to make your big mega church feel like while you're in a pandemic, while you're in quarantine to feel connected to one another. Do, do you mind just, just sharing a little bit of that? Yeah. You know,
1: I, man, I'm, I'm glad you're telling people cause I'm going, I don't know what I'm doing. We, it, <laughs> it was, um, uh, it was honestly the, um, when Paul uh, in the letter of Corinthians, when he talks about how uh, I've been shipwrecked, I've been you know uh, left at sea, I've been stoned, I've been whipped, I've been I've been without food and hungry. Cold, all, he, he goes through all that suffering he had. At the very end, he says, "Plus, there's the anxiety for my churches." You know, and I had I've read that a bazillion times, and I never really understood that last part of it—that a- anxiety of the churches—and uh, he felt that because he couldn't be with them and. And so like, that's I had never felt that because whether I realized it or not, I know that not everybody shows up every single Sunday. But there's this probably a false sense, but there's a sense that I'm with everybody week to mm-hmm. week to week. And so I can at least see, you know, are people showing up uh, mm-hmm. Are they staying connected? Are they getting involved? And and it was just like that rug was just ripped up from under our feet and we all came collapsing down. And I looked up and it had been a couple of months. I'm like, I don't know if there's anybody mm-hmm. you got stats on. Uh, online views and and maybe some people connecting with virtual prayer times that we have and stuff like that. But you know who knows? Everybody's going. How how many is that really on Facebook views? You know, this person who's scrolling through their phone and they happen to see it. Once, that doesn't really count like a view. And uh, so we're looking at our numbers, but we got no sense of how connected we are or aren't with our people. Mm-hmm. And I, I would struggle to sleep at night. I got, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if we're staying connected. I don't know if people feel attached. I don't know if the enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion, just devouring the flock and they're disconnected and they're isolated and they're easy pickings. And I'm sitting there as the shepherd and I'm doing nothing about it. Mm. And, uh, and so I, I got anxious, really anxious. And and then on, on top of that, uh, we have this, you mentioned uh, it was one of our vision goals of a thousand children adopted and, and foster parented. And we have 13 other ones and I can't, we don't, we don't have time for a pause button on this vision God has given us. There's a, there's a timeline and we all know it and we're after it and we can't just stall out right now. So, mm. uh, what do we do? How, how do we, how do we combat this? Mm. We can't just say, well, we're just going to wait it out. That, that'll be, that'll, the church will be devoured. We'll be so far behind in our vision. We'll have lost mm. so many people to the enemy. So we're just going to have to get really, really innovative and creative and, um, I'm a fairly disciplined person. So I map things out, look at your plans, break them up and uh, set them into smaller categories. And we all attack it and and do our job. But all that was gone. We'd done our yearly planning in October that commenced January 1. And then a global pandemic hits. And you might as well just rip all that up and burn it because none of it worked. So we just had to get super creative. And uh, the spirit of God was gracious to, to us, to our staff, to our leadership team, I felt like ideas were flowing like they had never uh, flowed before. They, they were just they were coming out in new ways to engage with leadership, engage with the church body, reach out to them, make sure they're connected, new ways to advance the, the vision. I mean, I think about adoption foster care. We we have had as, uh, more families step up and say, I'm ready to bring a child into my home during the pandemic than we had before, which is like, how can that even happen? And the, the only thing I can think of, I, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out, like, how, how did that even happen? And I think in God's perfect sovereignty, you have people who, by God's grace, they're staying connected. They're engaging, albeit not, not the way they want it to be, virtual services and Zoom community groups and D groups and things like that. But they're staying quasi-connected. But they're going, I don't feel like I have any output for ministry. I used to volunteer in this. I used to go serve in this place. I, I used to do all these things. And I, I want to I wanna continue to do ministry. But every day, all the time, they're spending time, they're working from home, they're with their family, they're, and they, they're now looking at their one thing they have left, their family unit, and they're going, what can I do for ministry? And they go, oh, well, maybe I could use my family for ministry. Well, what would that look like? Well, I know we have a huge adoption foster care ministry. What would it look like for me to bring a child into my home and I can continue to make a difference for the sake of the kingdom, whether there's a pandemic or not, I can use my home for ministry. Mm-hmm. And so now people who maybe were just sitting on the fence, like, you know, applauding, golf clapping, those who were doing it are now going, if I'm going to get in the game, I got to do something. Here's my best option. So, you know, put me in coach, tell me what do I need to do? And we just happen to have resources available virtually that we could connect with people, help them take steps. And uh, and so it, it grew, there was a surge in it. I think, because people are asking the right questions. How can I use my family to do ministry? So God was just gracious and blessing us in this unique season and uh, expanding the ministry. had an online ministry that he expanded uh, profoundly, like many other churches got to experience, and we've been able to capitalize on that as well. So, uh, you know, uh, it's a little crude, but uh, God blesses the stupid, and we're stupid, and he blessed us, and we just receive it and are gracious, grateful for it, and his graciousness to us. And plan to leverage it every
0: everywhere we can, honestly. Amen. Well bro, I wish we could go on forever, but uh, you know, I, I have seen so much fruit come out of the Ministry of Fielder, uh, both locally and, and I, I remember because back in September we were together in a coffee shop and just even to, to have people coming up and give testimony you right there about how the Lord's been working in their life. and I'm grateful for the way that he's used you both in that local community, but also as a a mouthpiece for the fatherless. And uh, I would just encourage anyone, uh, not only is Jason such an incredible pastor and a visionary, uh, but he is an incredible preacher as well. And so uh, go to Fielder.org to hear some of his messages, but also just to learn more about what Fielder is doing. And certainly if you're in the Central Texas area, the Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, I know that they would love to have you there. Well, brother... You know, before, before we jump off, I know, I know we got time on. There's one thing
1: I wanted to share, if you don't mind. It, Please. It something that uh, I was so excited about. It, if I know most of the people listening are people who already have a heart for uh, adoption, foster care. But I, I just had to share this. I, I got a note from my son, Max, uh, right here. And it was he wrote it to me just a couple of weeks ago. No reason for it. But this is what made every bit of it worth it. Uh, it I want to read it for you. It says, dear dad, he's 15 years old, by the way. Dear Daddy, he still calls me Daddy, which I love. I'm so thankful that you adopted me 12 years ago. You have you have, and always will inspire me to be the best person I can be. You are an amazing father, and I hope that someday I can carry on your family name. I'm so honored to call you Dad as well as Pastor. I love you. Your one and only son, Max. And I, I read this right before I was going to do my quiet time because he wrote it the night before I had no clue about it. And when I read that line that I hope someday I can carry on your family name, I just— mm. I thought, that that is such a picture of the gospel. Amen. He is my only son. He is the one who's going to carry on my name, and he longs to do so. Mm. And I thought, man, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes in life. Now, I'm not a perfect father or pastor, but the fact that God called us to bring this child into our home and we said yes is the least bit of a mistake I've ever made. It, is, it has been the most beautiful, rewarding thing. And I just had that reminder, and I thought, I, how many families miss experiencing something like that because they don't they don't take that step into it so i just i wanted the world to know i'm so proud of my son and so amazed that he would even love me back and that's that's the picture of adoption anyway and so i i wanted to share that i want you guys to hear that because i think it's worth it
0: amen well what a great way to end and so just to an encouragement god is calling you to get engaged in the life of a vulnerable child it's worth it and you will not make a mistake to say yes